Our first scripture reading is Matthew 4, 18 through 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And our second reading is Romans 10, 9 through 17. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name's Andrew Wild. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And if this is your first Sunday with us, I want to extend to you a special welcome. I know I speak for all of us when I say that we're so glad you're here. And we hope you'll come to discover that this church is not only a great place to worship the Lord on Sunday mornings, it's also a great community to be a part of. And to that end, we want to get to know you. So after the service is over, when you walk out those double doors directly in front of me, you'll find your self in this big, large, open area that we call our coffee bar, and we hope you'll enjoy a cup of coffee or some muffins, and then stop by our Welcome Center so we can have the chance to meet you. I'll also mention that if this is your first Sunday with us, that you're joining us in the middle of a seven-week sermon series on our values, the values that define our church, and I see how this might sound a little self-promotional, but I promise we're not doing this. We're not calling attention to our values because we're self-absorbed. Rather, the goal is to create greater unity, uh, to promote greater clarity in our church. You see, every organization, every business, every team has values. Even, even we as individuals have values. And what happens is our values drive our behavior. So if you as an individual say you valued being physically fit, that's going to express itself in the food that you eat or the food that you don't eat in the way that you make time for a trip to the gym or to go on a run. If you worked for Chick-fil-A, you would probably say that your company values customer service. And that would be expressed in the way that you're always going the second mile, the way that you're, you're grabbing an umbrella to take someone out to their car when it's raining or putting fresh flowers on the table. So our values not only reveal what's important to us, they also influence our behavior. So, so hopefully this series helps explain some things about why we act the way that we do, why we behave the way that we do. It's kind of like being in a romantic relationship with someone. 
So this, there comes this point in time in the relationship where things have progressed to such a level that it's time to meet the parents. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? You've had this experience before? And, and, and if you've ever gone to meet the parents, you've spent a weekend getting to know these people you previously didn't know, you know that there comes this point in time where you, you look around the room at all these new faces, and then you look back over at your significant other, and then you think to yourself, it's all making sense now. This explains so much. That's why she does that thing. Now, you, you know, no show of hands here. We don't need to incriminate ourselves. I can tell some of you know what I'm talking about. And I, and I hope the same thing happens with this series, that there's some sort of realization about, oh, that's why those people are always praying about that. That's why they're hosting these kinds of activities. That's why they're always allocating resources to this. Now, in some sense, all of these values are already true of who we are as a congregation. But in another sense, they're aspirational. We, we feel like there's room for some growth. We can still lean into these. And if you open up your bulletin and you look inside, you'll find this little vision frame that's a helpful reminder of the vision of the values that we've already highlighted. If someone went sniffing around our church and then they were asked, well, you know, what's important to these people? What do they value? They'd probably say that we care a lot about the Bible and prayer, that we seek to live our lives with a humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit, and that we seek to be generous the same way that our Savior was generous. So we could say it differently, that we're Bible-centered, we're prayer-fueled, we're Spirit-led, and then we're generous-hearted. But what else might a person sent to investigate our church say that we value? Well, some of you were here for the call to worship, and you got a little sneak preview from, from our youth pastor, Brian Edmonds. But if you weren't here, let's just think about this together for a moment, okay? So if a person walked into our sanctuary, they would walk past a very large display dedicated to an unreached people group our church has adopted in India. If they inspected our bulletin, they would note that we have an entire section devoted to outreach. They'd see the way that we promote our local missions partners, and they recall from our weekly rock updates that we have two upcoming short-term mission trips to Mongolia and Colombia this summer. They'd remember that a team of 20 people just returned from serving at the Challenge Farm in Kenya. If they examined our budget, they would see that 11% of every dollar we receive is allocated to missions. They might also observe that towards the end of most services, we, we end our time of worship by calling attention to a particular missions partner or missionary that we'd like to pray for during the week. If that person dug a little deeper, they'd discover that our small groups have adopted missionaries to care for and to encourage. And if they dug really deep, they'd discover that the first check our church ever wrote was to missions. So is anybody starting to, to kind of notice a theme here? Picking up on a word that might be a potential value for us. Help me out here. What word's coming to mind? Missions. We are mission-minded. And if this is your church, will you just turn to the person beside you right now with a big smile on your face? Will you tell them, we are mission-minded? We're mission-minded. That's us. And, and what we mean by that 
is that we're dedicated to sharing the gospel locally and globally. Now, why might this be important? Why might this be a value of ours? If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Now, in Romans chapter 10, Paul is specifically addressing the question of whether God has been faithful to the promises that he made to the nation of Israel. But Paul is also writing more broadly about God's relationship with all people and how everyone, regardless of their ethnicity, is saved. The good news of Jesus Christ, also known as the gospel, is succinctly summarized in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say that you might be saved. It doesn't say that there's the potential that you could be saved. It doesn't say that you avail yourself to the, to the possibility of being saved. It says you what? You will be saved. So that's the good news in a nutshell. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the passage goes on to teach that this salvation that God freely offers through faith in Jesus is available to everyone. He writes, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So who can be saved? Everyone. All people who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. So that's the good news. Everyone, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of hair color or skin color or height or body type, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if people are saved by calling on the Lord, this then raises a very natural question. And the Apostle Paul takes up this question in verses 14 and 15. He writes this. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So what do we see going on here? We see a series of rhetorical questions, four questions to be exact, and each question begins with what word? How? And by, by beginning each sentence with the, with the verb that's ended the previous sentence, the apostle is laying out this logical chain of events that needs to be followed for people to be saved. And I think we've all done something very similar. It's kind of like if I, as a, as a soccer coach over at the YMCA, told the kids, hey, listen, we can't score the ball unless we shoot the ball. And we can't shoot the ball unless we have the ball. And in order to get the ball, someone has to pass us the ball. Before they can pass us the ball, we need to get open, so get open. But don't worry, I haven't dropped that on a bunch of eight-year-olds. But you, know, you, you, you kind of get the idea. You get the chain of events that, that need to be followed. And this is what Paul's doing here. He says, if salvation is granted to all who call on the Lord, then how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, people will call on Jesus to save them 
only if they believe he can do so. And very logically then, Paul then asks, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? In other words, belief in Jesus is preceded by hearing about Jesus. Which is why Paul then asks, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? So the good news remains unknown unless someone shares it, unless someone declares it. I know that 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 word preaching right there calls to mind someone standing behind a pulpit, but the Greek word here is much broader than that. It, It calls to mind just simply making something known or serving as a herald. It, it's, it's what we do when we have news and we share it with someone. It's not an activity that's limited to, to sanctuaries and Sunday mornings. And so then, naturally, Paul, Paul concludes this by saying, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? In other words, the message about Christ, this good news that we've all heard, is proclaimed as people are sent out by God to share it. And so, If the way people are saved is by calling on the name of the Lord, and ultimately for this to happen, people have to be sent out to share the good news so that people can hear it and then believe it. This is then why Paul exclaims, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, and he says this, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Incidentally, I thought about tweaking the... uh, the wording of this value in going with we are beautiful feet, but I, I realized that, that could have a weird ring to it. So we're just we're gonna go with mission minded. But some of you might be reading this chain of events and you might be thinking to yourself, I don't know if I like this. Why, why does God work through human messengers? I mean, shouldn't God just use like skywriting? Or or can't God just get the word known by audibly speaking to people when they're alone in the car or alone in the shower. I, I, I don't like the way God's working. And I'd say that, that's a really relevant question. It's a good question. And, and here's where I've landed on this. Here's my not-so-pastoral pastoral response. If you don't like the way God's doing things, when you're powerful enough to create your own universe, when you're smart enough to do that, then, then you can run it differently. But until then, we should submit to God's plan. And, and I, I, really, I, I realize that can sound a little harsh, and I don't, I don't mean it that way, but here, here's the mistake I think we sometimes make. We think, well, you know, God's just a slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of me. And that's not true. God's completely, he's completely other. His ways are higher than our ways. He's the creator and we're the creation. He's infinite and we're finite. And I don't think it's any surprise that this particular section of Scripture ends the way it does. It's like after thinking about this for three chapters, Paul just can't help himself as he thinks about the supremacy of God and he just explodes with these words. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Like that settles it. So be it. 
I know that, that, that God's ways can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around at times. But let's not forget who He is. We can never plumb the depth of His wisdom and knowledge. It doesn't matter how, how high your IQ is or how many advanced degrees you have. There, there's never going to be a moment in time where God looks down and thinks to Himself, and He's like, oh, you know, there's Joe. Maybe I should bring him on in an advisory capacity. You know, he, he, he's, he's got a sharp mind. He's a, he's a critical thinker. Uh, may, maybe he could, he could add some value to the way I'm, I'm running the universe. I, I should bring him on. That conversation is never going to happen. He's God, and we're the creation. And, and, and here's, here's where I've landed on this. God in his infinite wisdom, has decreed, has ordained that people can be saved. And, he, and he's also ordained the means by which people can be saved. And the means by which we are saved is by hearing the good news and believing in it. That's the means. And let's just get really practical for a moment. Sometimes when we hear the word missions, we have the tendency to think of it as a piece of the pie. Like, oh yeah, missions, that's important. Our, our church should have a missions program. And so we end up compartmentalizing missions in our minds. It's this thing that exists in our church alongside like a children's ministry and a youth ministry and a men's ministry and a women's ministry and, and, a, and a counseling ministry and so on. And a, and a pie chart like this can be a helpful tool when thinking about our allocation of resources. And once a year, the members of our church receive a chart uh, similar to this. It's a lot prettier because Brett does it. But it, uh, it, it can be a helpful tool for thinking about how tithes and offerings are invested to support the advancement of the kingdom. But I want to challenge us to think of missions not as a piece of the pie. Missions isn't so much a piece of the pie as it is a lens through which we view life. And what I mean by that is that when I say we're missions-minded, we aren't saying that missions is just something we do alongside a host of other church activities. Rather, we're saying that our dedication to missions colors the way that we think about everything. We could also express this value by saying we're missions-oriented or missions-focused. Because faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of Christ, and God has sent us out to be heralds of this Word, we can think of ourselves as people who are sent on a mission. Jesus told his followers that his mission was to seek and to save what was lost. And if we're his followers, why would we think that our mission would be any different? Why would we think that our mission would be to amass as much wealth as possible or to spend as much time at the beach as possible? or to spend as much time on the golf course as possible, or to buy as nice a house as possible. If we're followers of Jesus, then our mission is going to be very similar to His. Our mission is to go out as His sent ones and to proclaim the good news, to follow Him and His mission. And as a way of unpacking what it looks like to be mission-minded, it helps to think about how this expresses itself geographically and contextually. So let's just think about this geographically for a moment. Where do we, as sent ones, go with this 
good news, with the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Well, we go with it locally and globally. We take it locally and globally. And we get this idea from Jesus. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus looked at his disciples and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, anybody want to guess where the disciples were standing when they heard these words? I heard it over here, Jerusalem. So, what does that mean for us? Where is our Jerusalem? Yeah, I heard, yes. Maybe it's Winston-Salem. Maybe it's Clemens. Maybe it's Louisville. Wherever you're living, that's your Jerusalem. And probably for most of us, like the triad is our Judea. But we know that our local community isn't to be our sole focus. Jesus wants the message, the good news, to be cascaded outward to the end of the earth. And that's why local and global missions are important to us. We have a heart for those in our immediate vicinity and a passion to proclaim the good news to those living halfway around the world in places like North India and Myanmar and Mongolia. And our engagement with local missions happens through short-term trips and by sending and supporting those called to, to midterm and long-term assignments. We offer multiple short-term trips every year. In fact, if you're interested in a trip, we've got a trip to Colombia and a trip to Mongolia happening this summer. Generally, a, a, a midterm assignment is longer, usually around a year. And a great example of this is Brianne Shapira. Many of you know Brianne's parents, Eddie and Michelle, and Brianne grew up in our church. She's going to graduate college in May, and later this summer, she's heading over to the Czech Republic for a year to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are living there. Others in our congregation have felt called to a more long-term assignment. I think of two young ladies who also grew up in our church. Think of Kayla Nielsen and Anna Smith. So Kayla and her husband Jarrett lived for many years in China where they were sharing the good news there, and now they, they live in Dallas, Texas, in a neighborhood not far where I went to seminary, and, and within a one-mile radius of their neighborhood, you could easily find refugees from over 30 different countries. So that's, that's where they are now, still reaching the, the world, but doing it from, from Dallas. And I think of Anna, who spent many years in Taiwan and is still involved in, in taking the good news to the uttermost parts of the world. I also think of spiritual heroes of mine, Bill and Debbie Wright. They were here in the first service. For many years, Bill and Debbie lived in China. Bill acquired a job teaching law at a university over there, but they didn't move over there for that job. They moved over there because they had a passion to share the life-changing message of Jesus Christ with those who were living in China. So Bill leveraged the skills that God had given him to find a job in a city where the people had virtually no opportunities to hear that they could call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And so they packed up their bags, and over to China they went. And here's what we believe. That God will call some of us to do something very similar. Don't just assume that the next job that God wants you to take is the one closer to the C-suites. If you read our church's vision at the beginning of the, the small group study guide for this series... You have a sense for how we feel like God is calling us to double down on our commitment to missions. 
And I know this might sound crazy because we're already known as a church that's mission-minded. But as we follow the leading of the Spirit, here's what we think is going to happen. Here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit takes people and propels them outward with the gospel. And so, so we have this vision. Then we think about the year 2025, seven years from now, that we're going to look around and we're going to see that 80% of our church is engaged locally with missions. And that dozens of others have been called overseas. We're praying. We're believing. We're thinking that God's going to raise up from our midst men and women who will leave this place and go be heralds of the gospel in some other place around the world where there isn't a faithful gospel presence. And maybe you're one of the ones that God's going to nudge. Don't just assume it isn't you. All of us should pray about where God would want us to be on mission for Him. And for those of us who remain, we know that our job is to support those who go. Perhaps the name William Carey will be familiar to some of you. William Carey is known as the, as the father of modern missions. He was convicted by what he read in Scripture, and he realized the importance of sharing the gospel with those who had never heard the good news. And before leaving for India in 1793, he looked at his friend Andrew Fuller, and he said, I'll go down into the pit if you'll hold the ropes for me. And Andrew Fuller faithfully held the ropes, allowing William Carey to accomplish so much. And if God's calling you to stay in your Jerusalem, that doesn't mean that, that, that you get to be ambivalent about what God's doing elsewhere. You have a role to play as a rope holder. And we hold that rope by providing care and support and encouragement to those who have been sent out. So, so that's how our mission-mindedness expresses itself geographically. We have this passion for what's happening locally and globally. But we can also think about our mission-mindedness contextually. And, and what I mean by that is that our dedication to missions is going to express itself in two contexts or two situations. It's going to happen in prearranged context and in providential context or providential situations. Let me explain. Because we're mission-minded, we intentionally set aside specific mission We set aside time for these very specific mission-related endeavors. When something's important to you, what do you do? You put it on the calendar, don't you? So why would we not do anything different when it comes to missions? And here's what this might look like. This might look like signing up for a short-term mission trip. This might look like signing up to serve at Samaritan Ministries first Saturday of every month. This might look like helping with Salem Pregnancy Care Center, who, by the way, are in the middle of their baby bottle campaign. This might look like helping with our church's international team and what they're doing to reach people who live in our area who are from a different country. Because we're mission-minded, we intentionally come alongside our local missions partners to share the gospel. And most of the time, this type of missions engagement, is, it's prearranged. It's predetermined. We've, we've put it on our schedule, 
And, and we know ahead of time that there's just going to come this point in time in the month when we're going to have the opportunity to go and to show and to share the good news of Jesus. And on our website, you can find our local missions field guide, which lists all our missions partners. Or out in the coffee bar on our missions wall, we have this local missions field guide. You can pick up a copy of this. But missions is not only something that we work into our calendar. Our mission-mindedness creates a lens through which we view life. And so we go through life with this awareness that God is wanting to use us, and we're looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Whereas the missions opportunities I talked about over here are prearranged, these opportunities that I'm talking about over here are providential. See, what happens is we might schedule these these opportunities, we work them into our calendar, but God schedules these opportunities. They're, they're divine appointments. We don't predict these. What happens is just as we're going through life with this awareness that God wants to, to use us, that we're sent ones, that we're heralds of his message, he's going to bring people into our lives that are going to be recipients of the good news that we're going to share with them. And so being on mission, being mission-minded, isn't just something that happens when we walk into Samaritan Ministries on Saturday night. We know that we're also on mission when we step foot in our office or in our school or in a PTA meeting or sit down on a plane or hop in an Uber. Because we're mission-minded, we go through life with this awareness that we're sent ones and we're on the lookout for ways that God is wanting to use us. And what this means is the way that we measure our health as a church, isn't with our seating capacity, it's our sending capacity. And, and here's what I mean by that. Let's just suppose there, there, there's two churches, and I want you to figure out with me which one might be healthier. Let's just suppose we've got Congregation A. It's made up like 10,000 people. And every week they come in the doors and they worship together. They hear really inspiring worship and an uplifting message, and then they go out they don't do anything during the week, but they come back the next Sunday hoping for another inspiring experience. That's church A. What about if a church B? 100 people. They come together, they worship the Lord on Sunday, and then when they leave, they go out with this awareness that they're on mission. And they look for opportunities to show and to share the good news of Jesus when they go into their schools and their offices and the neighborhood. Which church do you think might be healthier? Church B, probably, right? I, I suspect that what's most important to God is not our seating capacity as a church. It's our sending capacity. And the way that we grow in our sending capacity, the way that we strengthen our mission-mindedness isn't hearing a preacher stand up here and maybe wave a finger and say, you need to be more mission-minded. The way we become more mission-minded is just by thinking about what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. It's by dwelling on the gospel. It's by thinking about how He saved us already. And you know, Jesus gave us a very tangible reminder, a very tangible way of remembering and reflecting on what it is that He has done for us. It's called the Lord's Supper. 
It's a meal that Jesus gave to his disciples before he went to the cross. And it commemorates what he did on our behalf. On the, on the eve of his execution, while Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And when we partake of this meal, it causes us to make a very sobering and humbling reflection of ourselves. It forces this self-assessment. And this meal reminds us of our condition apart from Christ. It causes us to realize that we're sinners in need of a Savior. See, while we have this tendency to downplay our sin and to say, oh, yeah, I made a couple mistakes or, you know, I've, I've made some poor decisions. This meal reminds us that actually sin's a big deal. It matters a whole lot. In fact, it's so serious that God had to send His eternally begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross on account of it. But at the same time, this meal is also a celebration because it assures us that Jesus was our all-sufficient substitute. He received the punishment that we deserve. And we can receive the perfect righteousness that He has to offer when we place our faith in Him and we can be reconciled to God. In a moment, we're going to celebrate this meal. And the elements are available to all who have professed faith in Jesus. And if you've never done that before, in a moment, we're going to have a time for silent prayer and reflection. And then I'm going to lead us in a corporate prayer. And I'll provide you with the opportunity to accept Jesus as your Savior. And if you're not ready to make that decision, just when the elements come to you, you can just pass them to the next person And we hope this time will be beneficial to you just for you to reflect on your relationship with Jesus. After you've received the bread and the cup, if you have a need for prayer today, we just invite you to come up to one of these front rows and there'll be folks up here that would love to pray with you, pray for you. Then after we've all celebrated communion, I'll send us out with a benediction. And as you leave, There'll be baskets by the door where you can place your tithes and offerings and also your hey, I'm here card. Let's go to the Lord now in a time of private prayer. God, our Father, 
we invite you to search our hearts. And use your word by your spirit to guide us, to instruct us, to convict us if need be, and to lead us in the way of everlasting. Yeah, we recognize that we can't begin to understand your ways, but we do thank you for making it very clear to us how we can be reconciled to you, how we can receive eternal life how we can spend forever with you. And we know that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be our perfect substitute, to be our Savior. And if you've never made the decision to trust Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. You can just pray a prayer like this in the quietness of your heart. And Jesus, I admit that I am sinful and I recognize I fall short of your glory. I thank you for paying my debt on the cross and taking the punishment that I deserved in order to offer me complete forgiveness. I know that you have been raised from the dead and that you have power over death. I turn from my sin. And I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Amen.